Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. One of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For anyone, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he left there and went into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Okay. Sin, hell, and divorce. Yikes. Lucky, lucky are we today. And how much more lucky am I to be the preacher today? Sin, hell, and divorce, uh, probably three uh, topics that no one uh, wants to talk about, and certainly I uh, do not preach this sermon because these are the three topics that, uh, if, if it were up to my heart, I would lay in front of you. But that is not the heart that we come to hear when we hear the Word of God. It is not the preacher's thoughts, it is not the preacher's wishes and will, that we come to listen to. It is the Word of God. And that is why here at River Community Church, we are committed to expository preaching. Expository preaching is that we preach what the Word says. We bring it out. We expose it. And so the way we judge a sermon at River Community Church is not how good it was, how great it made me feel, but how faithful it is to what the Word of God says. And so when we do expository preaching, we are allowing God to set the agenda. Why are we preaching on these verses? Because they're the next verses in the Gospel of Mark that we've been going through. 
And we do not skip these verses because God in his wisdom gave us these verses. And there is something profitable for us to get out of these verses. So it calls us to be committed to hearing what God says, even in hard passages like this. This is what makes us Christian. We confessed together our commitment to the authority of the word of God. It is because that is our confession that we allow the whole counsel of God to come and speak to us, even in difficult places. But that does not make the task easy. It doesn't make the last week of preparation a comfortable experience. And it doesn't even make my heart all that eager to preach. So if you would, please join me in prayer. Father, we come to this text and we come to this sermon trusting in your wisdom and in the rightness of your word and in the necessity of everything that you have given us to live faithfully, to be obedient, to walk in this world as yours. So, Father, I pray, help us with ears to hear and help me to preach what needs to be said here, to say it in the right measure. Father, to say it not just as truth, but to, 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 to communicate your grace as well. Father, show us your redemptive will in these verses. Make me a vessel that communicates what you want your people to hear today. Wash away from it any unfaithfulness in speech that it may stand as your true and enduring and good will for this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why talk about sin? Most of us have tried to steer the conversation away from sin. Sin is a, it's just an ucky topic. Why, why talk about sin? Why not just talk about grace? Just talk about what Jesus has done and how beautiful Jesus is and the majesty of God. Why not just focus on these subjects? Why talk about sin? Because it is necessary for us to understand the gospel. We cannot know the good news without knowing the bad news. It is also necessary for us to understand as disciples of Jesus we have been called to follow him. That is a path of righteousness. That is a path of increasing sanctification. And so we must have, as disciples, an understanding of sin and an appropriate hatred of sin because the disciples' life is to fight the sin in their lives to better and better reflect the glory of God in their lives. Why do we need to talk about sin? Because you are in this fight right now. We can put our heads in the sand and not talk about it, but you are in the fight of sin. And sin wants you to ignore it. Because that's its power. That's where it wins. You are in this fight, though. And if this text is true, this is a most serious and deadly and urgent fight. You need to know about sin in order to survive, in order for your souls to persevere. This text tells us in so many ways that sin is deadly serious. 
and that the gospel is the only answer. So if you want to take away one sentence about what this sermon is about, it is this, sin is deadly serious, the gospel is the only answer. And we are going to go through this text, and we are going to see how serious it is by seeing three warnings from Christ about sin, but also three gospel remedies that we have to fight sin. You see, sin in this text is is like an infection, like like a disease that has entered into your body, and it is going to multiply, and it is going to attack, and it is going to take over unless there is a fight against it. The infection has a simple-minded mission to take over the body. And the only way that the body will not be taken over is if our defenses rise up to the challenge and fight against it. The problem is that one of the first attacks that sin gives us is to make us unafraid of it, undisturbed by it, to make us accommodating of it. To believe that it's not as powerful or as dangerous as it is. It wants to lull us out of the fight. And as it does that, it is killing us. There is a a story that I learned as a little child that explained how Eskimos up in the, 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 the tundra, up in the great north, kill wolves. The, the way that they kill wolves is that they take a knife and they coat it in the blood of their favorite prey. And they stick that knife blade up in the ground so that what happens is the wolf, driven by its insatiable appetite for that blood, comes to that blade and deliciously licks it taking in all of the savors of, that, of the blood of their prey until suddenly as they are licking the, 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 the knife, the blade, their own tongue is cut. But they cannot distinguish the difference between the blood of the animal and their own blood. And they literally lick that blade until they bleed out. That is what sin is. It tastes delicious. It looks enticing. But as we come to it, it is doing this, and it's unmistakable. It is taking your life away. It is killing you. And it will leave you as a corpse. So we must fight the infection of sin. And the good news, as we talk about the seriousness of sin, will be that the gospel gives us the remedy we need. Let us now go to this text. Let us look at these three warnings of how sin's infection grows. But also let us see the three remedies that the gospel gives us to kill that sin. The first warning, as you look at your outline, is this. Sin's infection grows by complacency. Sin's infection grows grows by complacency. But the remedy is that sin dies by mortification. Let us look at how this is, is told to us in this text. We look at verses uh, chapter 9, verses 42 to 48. These verses again 
we have probably all heard them before, but the idea of if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. There is a serious warning in this passage. The warning is this. We have the infection of sin. Jesus doesn't talk about something outside of you. He talks about your hand, your foot, your eye. He is saying that the infection of sin is in your body. The the fight against this infection is not outside of you. It is on the turf of your own soul. It is there. The enemy is within the gates. And so we must recognize the warning here against complacency. Complacency is the idea that you don't get upset, you don't get exercised about something, and because of that, you give that something the ability to intrude and to advance. Complacency means that you are culpable for, for the disease, if you are complacent with an infection that you find on your hand and you don't go to the doctor to get antibiotics, your complacency gave the infection the victory. And so we are told here to, be compl- to, to, to not fall into complacency because this infection is already in the hand, it is already in the foot, it is already in the eye. Now, of course, those are figurative Uh, It is not your foot or your hand that has the sin, but the idea is that the sin has already entered the body. It is already living there. Its desire is to make you its host. It is like the image here seems to be similar to uh, the infection uh, that leads to gangrene. Are you guys familiar with how gangrene works? At some point, the infection, the rot of that infection becomes so serious that the only way to save the body is to cut off the gangrenous extremity, to cut off the leg, to cut off the hand. Jesus wants you to think about the sin that is in your life like gangrene. If you do not cut it off, it will kill everything. It will take over. It is like what God said to, to Cain, or the, the, the first son of Adam and Eve, when he was jealous for uh, his brother Abel, God said to him in Genesis chapter 4 that sin is crouching at the door ready to take over. You see, sin is looking for every opportunity, every weakness to punch into your life and to destroy you. It will not grow tired. And so if we grow tired, the infection will win. Jesus wants us to recognize the seriousness of this infection he tells us three things that we have to, have to understand, we have to accept. This comes from our Savior and Lord, the only one who has been resurrected from the dead, the only one who has gone from life to death to life. He is the only one that knows the truth of what he is about to say. He is the authority. And in this passage, he tells us three important things about the seriousness of sin. The first, he tells us that hell is real. Hell is real. You can get together and deny that hell exists. You can imagine that hell couldn't possibly exist based on on how you want to imagine God is. But on the testimony of Jesus, he says three or four times in this passage, there is a hell. So we choose the word of God or we choose to make up our own reality 
But if the word of God rules, hell is real. Second, hell is awful. Jesus describes it as Gehenna. Gehenna was an actual place on the map in Jerusalem. It's the, it's the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And back in the, in the days of the kings, it became a place where gross idolatry, the sacrifice of, of the king's sons, was happening. And so to, to remove this sacrilege from the place of Jerusalem, to stop that behavior, Josiah covered the, the valley of Hinnom with trash and rubbish and refuse. All of, the, all of the awful stuff that was where the dumpster was. And they lit it on fire. So the, sun, the, the valley of the son of Hinnom was literally this dumpster fire. Fed every day by more trash so that it never extinguished. It was this never stopping burning fire of trash. With smoke going up continually. And so Jesus is saying that the, the hell he is talking about is Gehenna. It is a never-ending burning fire. It is just like what you have seen, that dumpster fire. That is, that is Gehenna. It is, it is awful. It is awful. Third, hell is the judgment for sin. Hell is the judgment for sin. If your hand causes you to sin, you have bought a ticket to Gehenna. That's what the text says. This is just exactly what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verses 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right now we have to focus on that first part. The wages of sin is death. Why is it so serious? Why is sin so serious that it has the punishment of hell, that it has the punishment of unquenchable fire, that it has the judgment of God so unremitting against it? We must recognize that sin is not small picadillos, little mistakes. Every sin is a revelation in our heart that we do not want the lordship of God. We want our own lordship. Every sin is saying, I know God's will, but my will is better. And so when every sin is the overthrow of God, and every sin is the throwing down of the authority and the majesty of God, we're dealing with infinite realities. And when we offend infinite realities, we incur infinite consequences. But there is a remedy. The gospel not just pays for our sins. It also changes our affections. This is important. We are talking about the gospel. The gospel is the remedy because it gives us the desire to mortify our sins. And why that is important to understand is when we talk about the gospel, a saving faith in the gospel unites you to Christ and it unites you to his affections. Christ hates sin. And so as you are united to Christ, you experience the same change in your affections. The sins are not enticing because they are odious. Your affections are aligned with Christ. You learn to hate sin in the gospel. This is, this is clear in Romans chapter 6, 1 and 2. We are told, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that 
grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, the gospel killed your sin life. It said, you are dead to sin. And as we walk in the gospel, as we live out the gospel, we make that death to sin a daily truth by fighting the sin in our lives. It is an urgent fight. Jesus talks about cutting it off, cut off the hand, pluck out the eye. He is saying figuratively that as important as it is to amputate a gangrenous arm, it is important to do whatever it takes to defeat sin. And the the theological word for that is called mortification. Mortification simply means putting to death the sin that lingers in your your life. Now, do do we accomplish mortification by our own flesh, by our own strength? No, thank God. Listen to Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, the, the battle of mortification is not something that is in your own power. God in his gospel gives you the power to fight the sin because he gives you his Holy Spirit. So that by the Spirit, by walking in the Spirit, by being led by the Spirit, you can do battle against sin. You can put it to death. We do this in the power of God's Spirit. Well, that's all good. That's, that's all theology. I appreciate that. How? How is the fight of mortification actually waged? Uh, John Piper in a devotional that I read a couple years ago, wrote something very arresting. I believe it describes quite well what is the task of mortification. And I believe it provides an exercise that is worthwhile for each and every one of us to, to practice. Let me read what John Piper says regarding the mortification of sins. He says, Have you ever, in the first five seconds of temptation, demanded of your mind that it look steadfastly at the crucified form of Jesus Christ. Picture this. You have just seen a a peekaboo blouse inviting further fantasy. You have five seconds. No, get out of my mind. God, help me. Now immediately, demand of your mind. You can do this by the Spirit, as we see in Romans 8.13. Demand of your mind to fix its gaze on Christ on the cross. Use all of your fantasizing power to see his lacerated back. Thirty-nine lashes left little flesh intact. See him heaving with his breath up and down against the rough vertical beam of the cross. Each breath puts splinters into the lacerations. The Lord gasps. From time to time he screams out with intolerable pain. He tries to pull away from the wood And the massive spokes through his wrists rip into the nerve endings and he screams again with agony and pushes up with his feet to give some relief to his wrists. But there's more agony. The bones and the nerves in his pierced feet crush against each other with anguish and he screams again. There is no relief. His throat is raw from screaming and thirst in torment. 
He forgets the crowns of two-inch thorns and throws his head back in desperation only to hit one of the thorns against the beam. His voice reaches a soprano pitch of pain and sobs break over his pain-wracked body as every cry brings more and more pain. Now I am not thinking about the blouse anymore. I am at Calvary. These two images are incompatible. If you will use the muscle of your brain to pursue, violently pursue with the muscle of your mind images of Christ crucified with the same creative energy that you use to pursue sexual fantasies, you will kill them. I know that sounds awful. But how many times will you put that, have to put that awful idea in your mind before you will not fantasize about whatever tempts you? You see, Jesus went through that to pay for every single one of your sins. And so what Piper wants us to know is, is this sin that you were tempted by, that you were fantasizing about, do you want that? Do you want that he had to suffer more for each one of those sins? I know I'm speaking in human terms, but, but recognize every sin puts, has put Christ on the cross. We must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Let me ask you, what sin do you need to kill? Where is the infection? What do you have to do to kill it? So as we look further at this next warning, we're going to see that sin grows by compromise. Sin grows by compromise, but the gospel remedy is that sin dies by sanctification. Let us now look at verses 49 and 50. Verses 49 and 50, which are these famous words of Jesus talking about salt. Uh, Verse uh, 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. When we think about these verses, we're, we're, we're talking about the subject of, of the power of compromise in our, sin, in, our, in our sin life. What is compromise? How does compromise happen? Compromise is very simple. It happens when we have two commitments that we have made ultimate in our life, and we try and figure out a way to fit them together. So, for example, if our pursuit of pleasure becomes ultimate, at some point, we have to put that against the demands of Scripture. And we either mute those demands to, to feed the pleasure, or we have to fight the pleasure. Our popularity, at some point our popularity may put us crosswise with demands of Scripture. So if our popularity is ultimate, we will compromise some of the demands of Scripture. Our desires, even our politics... We must recognize that our political commitments can run contrary to our commitment to Christ. And if we hold those political commitments as an ultimate, then we will change what Scripture says to make those legitimate. These are places that that we see in our society where compromise is taking place. But Jesus must be heard here. In Matthew 6.24, Jesus says succinctly, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money or God and something else. Fill in the blank. So in verse 50, he, Jesus, when he says, uh, salt is good, but what good is it when it has lost, lost its saltiness? He is talking about what happens with compromise. Salt is our character. It's our Christ-likeness. It's our distinctness in our culture. When Jesus talks about salt losing its saltiness, he's talking about Christians losing their character, losing their commitment, choosing compromise. Now, some people baffle at the whole idea of how does salt lose its saltiness. In likelihood, Jesus is not talking about uh, pure uh, salt that you buy at the store that's the compound uh, you know, sodium chloride. He is talking about the salt that was used in the culture, which was taken out of the Dead Sea. It was this white powdery substance that had a lot of salt in it, but it also had white powdery substance that was not salt. And so what could happen in that, in that time was the salt could dissolve. It could get wet and dissolve out of, the, out of the, the white powdery substance, leaving white powder with no salt in it. still looked like salt. It had the appearance of salt, but it lacked the character of salt. And that is what he is talking about when he is talking about a salt losing its saltiness. It is appearance with, without the qualities. We must recognize the great danger of compromise for the Christian life. Go back to Mark chapter 4, where Jesus talks about the four different responses to the gospel, the four different hearings of the gospel. What did he say of that third hearing, the, the, the seed that falls upon the thorny ground? These are what he says about the people that have the, the word of God in them in thorny ground. He says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You see, that's the, the, the end of compromise. The thorns will eventually choke the word. And I hazard to remind us that according to that parable, those are Christians that do not finish. So it is a serious, serious issue. But there is a remedy. Their gospel remedy is this. Have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. What does that mean? Well, if salt is, is character and Christ-likeness, then the remedy of compromise is to grow our lives in Christ-likeness, to pursue what is called sanctification, pursuing more and more likeness of Christ in our lives, being more and more devoted, making ourselves more and more exclusively the Lord's. It means setting yourself apart for Christ. This is the natural consequence of the love of the gospel. What, does, what happens when we fall in love? When the love is real, we want to make it exclusive. We want to set ourselves apart to this person and this person only. That's what sanctification is. See, I don't want to compromise. I don't want to play the field. I don't want two or three things competing for my allegiance. I want to make Christ my Lord. I want to set myself apart to him. I want to live my life faithful to him. And that's sanctification. That seems to be what is, is going on in verse 49 with this Phrase, for everyone will be salted with fire. It is a, a bit of a, a mystery to the commentators what that means, but the, the best understanding uh, of what is being said there is going back to the sacrificial system 
that we see in the, the book of Leviticus. The grain offering, we are told in Leviticus chapter 2.13, is always to be given with salt. And so this bringing together of fire, of offering, and salt uh, reveals that Jesus is probably talking about the life of discipleship being a life of sacrifice. I.e. that the disciples are to think of themselves as a salted sacrifice given to the Lord. And so the disciples' life is a life of being a living sacrifice for the sake of Christ. Now here's what happens when you are a living sacrifice for Christ. You're going into the fire. You're going to be salted with fire. The fire is going to be the adversity and the persecution that comes from honoring Christ as ultimate. At some point, your popularity cannot be pursued any further because your commitment to Christ is ultimate. At some point, your pursuit of riches cannot be ultimate, and it has to stop because of your commitment to Christ. At those places, the world is going to give you adversity. At those places, the world is going to give you persecution. It's going to mock you. But if you're devoted to Christ, if you're sanctified, if you're living as a sacrifice for him, those adversities and those persecutions, what do they become? They become an honor. They become evidence of your exclusivity to Christ. And these words from Jesus become true. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see what's being said here is as you pursue sanctification and suffer for it, you are growing your affections for Christ and Christ is promising you a reward that will make all present suffering worthwhile, even forgotten. The immeasurable greatness of the glory in front of you for your faithfulness will make all present suffering seem small. My question, as we think about this personally, have you experienced this beatitude? Have you experienced your devotion for Christ bringing adversity and persecution into your life? Have you experienced your faith not fitting in to the compromises of this world? Pursue that. Because this is what we have to look forward to in Hebrews chapter 12. Let us all lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. As you fight compromise with your sanctification, you are setting your eyes on Christ. And there can be no more beautiful reward than knowing Christ, even through suffering. Now we have the last, passage, last section in our scripture, which includes the last remedy, or the last um, warning and the last remedy. The warning as we come into chapter 10 is that sin grows by callousing. Sin grows by callousing, but the gospel remedy is that sin dies by grace. And here we come to this passage on divorce and marriage. And I admit 
that this is the section of the scripture that I expect is hardest for most of us, and it's the hardest for me as I preach it. Simply put, this passage teaches us that God designed marriage for life and that divorce is not his will. That's what the text says. But the text also tells us in various different ways, and the reality that we all are familiar with is this. We live in a fallen world where divorce happens. We live in a a world so fallen that sometimes even divorce is the only good of bad options, or is the only option that's the least worst, or whatever you want to say it. Sometimes divorce happens. Sometimes divorce cannot be avoided. I know in this church, I know in this body, this family, people I love, that many of us have gone through divorce and experienced the sting of divorce. And so I I do not want this to to, to sound at all uh, cold. I want us to understand a couple things on the front end. First of all, Mark 3.28 Mark 3.28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. So when we talk about divorce, we are not talking about anything unforgivable. Second, the grace of the gospel can redeem. Wherever you are in the situation, or you feel like you're heading in divorce, in the middle of divorce, post-divorce, remarried, God's grace can redeem. Every one of those situations. And third, this sermon is not the place to deal with every single issue about divorce and remarriage. But if you have dealt with that, if that is something in your past or in your life, Christian counseling is needed to understand how to process this through the gospel. And I make myself available to to help you think through these things and and work through healing in these areas uh, one-on-one. But for the sake of what we're looking at today, I'm actually going to say that the, the primary concern of this text is actually not about divorce. It is actually about the heart. You see, the Pharisees come to Jesus, as they usually do, ready to debate, and they picked a nice, juicy topic They picked the topic of divorce, and they want Jesus to rule on the question of divorce. The words that they use is, this is a test. And it's not accidental that this test happens where it does. Jesus is in the region called Beyond the Jordan, which is the same place that King Herod is ruling. The same King Herod that just took John the Baptist's head off for talking about divorce. So the Pharisees are very much trying to get Jesus in trouble with Herod by having him decree divorce, talk about divorce. And so as Jesus is always excellent in doing, he takes the debate, he takes the test, and he drives it much deeper. He drives it into the question of the heart. He focuses on the fact that divorce is a symptom of something far worse called hardness of heart. Hard-heartedness. Look at verse 5 with me. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. You see, divorce is a symptom of hard-heartedness. And so when we look at this passage, we actually see that what he is warning against is 
hard-heartedness. What he is warning against is the callousing infection of sin. Note that this is, this is where he wants it to go because, first of all, you see that when he talks about hard-heartedness, he's not talking about divorce specifically. He's saying because of your hardness of heart, your, including the Pharisees, including the disciples, your plural, your universal hardness of heart. It is because you are afflicted with the condition of hardness of heart that things like divorce exist. We go back to the, to the book of Genesis chapter 3 and we recognize that our hard-heartedness is a, is a product of the fall, is a product of the curse of sin. Verse 16, we are told that the, the marriage relationship is going to be put under strain where the woman and the man are no longer going to have that harmonious balance of one flesh but are going to have an attitude of competition towards each other, a competition of, of, of ruling and usurping and all of these different things that, that cause grief in a marriage. But that is a product of the fall. That is a product of the curse. And that is a, that is a result that afflicts every single one of us. All of us have, are living on this side of the fall. We are all living in the curse of hard-heartedness. And we see that that hard-heartedness is, is like callousing. It's why your feet don't, don't hurt as much when you walk across the gravel. But the reason that they don't hurt as much is because you've gotten so used to the friction and the rubbing And you've created calluses. You see, what sin does, the way sin takes us from small things that we think aren't that big of a deal to these serious things is by a process of callousing. The reason that sometimes we wake up and say, I can't believe what I've done. I never thought that was possible in me. And I'm sure every single one of us, myself included, has said that is because sin calluses and calluses and calluses so that we are tough and not sensitive to the conviction of sin, making us more and more prone to greater and greater sins. This is true of all of us. And what Jesus is using here is as an example, divorce. I mean, divorce shows what hard-heartedness can do. It can take us to the point of hating the person we vowed to love. That's what hard-heartedness can do. It can make us hate what we, what we said I love. Second, we have to understand that hard-heartedness is opposed to God's goodness. God created marriage to be a life bond. He created it as a blessing and as a gift. It is our hard-heartedness that has made that an issue. Third, we see that it is destructive. I talked to a couple divorcees about this sermon and uh, one told me that, that that word about being one flesh, oh man, that is so true. Because the only thing that happens in a divorce is it's, it's ripping and tearing. It is like flesh being pulled apart. It is very traumatic. It is terrible. And that is what happens. There is ripping and tearing. There is causing to sin because often it puts one or two of the parties in a state of being outside of God's will. And fourth, we must see in this. Look at the word because. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, God made, Moses made you this commandment. He is telling us that the law cannot remove this problem of hardness of heart. All it can do is restrain it. All it can do is, is in some ways limit it. But the law is powerless to actually address the hardness of heart 
that is the cause of all of these things. So hardness of heart is a serious warning, one that we must fight against. But beloved, there is a remedy. There is a remedy. And it's in those words, because of your hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart, the remedy is grace. God didn't just send us his law. He sent us his son because of your hardness of heart. He destroys hardness of heart by his grace. Turn with me to John chapter 8 where we find a passage that is incredibly poignant. We find the story of a woman being brought at the hands of the Pharisees who are expressing the law and the hardness of heart to their zenith. They throw this woman in front of Jesus and they pull and they have a charge in front of them, a charge that cannot be denied. This woman was found in adultery. What does the law say? The law says that you must stone her. And so, Jesus, and so they say, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do with this woman, this sinner in front of you? And Jesus writes on the ground, probably writes some of the sins of everybody else around there. Who knows what he writes? But he says these words to them. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Inviting anybody in this group, pick up a stone. But as they see what he is writing on the ground, each and every one of them gives up and walks away until it is only the woman and Jesus standing together. And at that point, Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. You see, Jesus came to give grace, to give what the law could not do. Jesus was the one who had no sin, who had the right to throw the stone. But he did not throw the stone. He instead said, I do not condemn you. Go therefore and sin no more. Jesus shows us that the remedy to hard-heartedness is his grace. How? Did the condemnation just disappear? Did it just get vanished? Did he just say, well, never mind? No. When Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, it is because he is actually saying, in your place I condemn myself. I go to the cross I endure the pain and the penalty of your adultery. I endure the pain and the penalty of your hard-heartedness, your callousness, your compromise, your complacency. I bear all of it. I become the one with no sin, bearing the sin of the whole world. So that in me it is not the law that has the last word It is the grace of God that says, I freely forgive you upon the blood of my son. And that is the remedy to the hardness of heart. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. He took our condemnation. He died at the hands of the hard-hearted. 
and for the hard-hearted to destroy sin and to give us new hearts. In the gospel, we have hearts filled with grace. We are no longer trapped in our fall in the second Corinthians chapter 5 17 and 18 says if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation You are new creation in the gospel. As far as the curse is found, Christ's blood has washed it away. So that your hard-heartedness, complacency, and compromise no longer define you. The condemnation of the law no longer defines you. Because the remedy of grace has been given to us in the life of Christ. So what? Sin dies when we choose grace. When you allow the new creation, the new heart of the gospel to form your relationships, you live by grace in them. You live with forgiveness and repentance because those are the gifts of the gospel. They destroy hard-heartedness. My fellow believers, put to death your hard-heartedness. Who do you need to say, I'm sorry to? Who do you need to say, I forgive you? Who do you need to say, whatever it takes, I want to fix this? Grace is the remedy of our callousing. So we have seen these three warnings, but we have seen that the gospel is there to remedy it. Sin is deathly serious. Did you get that point? Did that point come through today? The gospel is the only answer. Did that come through today? So let me take you back to Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You do not have to leave here today condemned judged, disqualified. You can leave here with the free gift of Jesus Christ who has made you new creation, who has given you his grace to remove all condemnation. How do you receive it? You open your hands and you say, yes, my heart is sick. My heart is full of sin. I believe in Jesus who died for my sins and rose from the dead. Save me, Lord Jesus. Say that. Mean it. Give your life to him and the free gift of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ is yours. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.